Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. Today we're going to be talking about a movement which is gaining a lot of momentum around the world and drawing attention to the levels of racism in different societies. Later in the episode we're going to be speaking to Dr. Joy Banner from the Whitney Plantation Museum in Louisiana, one of the most important sites in the USA memorialising the system of slavery, something which has defined the power structures which still persist to this day. So there are a few things that I'm not going to focus on. Although it is a very important event, I'm not going to talk about the murder of George Floyd. This was just the latest in a long line of murders of black men by white police officers in the USA. It's a really important event for understanding the role of the police in the system of mass incarceration, the mass imprisonment in the USA. Another thing I'm not going to talk about is life as a black person today. I'm just not well placed to lecture anyone about that. Uh, I am a white man from the UK and I'm aware that I'm speaking to an audience all over the world from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. And I don't really think that it's my role to tell you what it's like to be a black person. So I'm not going to try and do that. What I want to do is to try to understand racism as a historical concept to understand its construction and the ways it was used in the past. I think an understanding of the history of racism helps to understand why there is an uneven playing field today. In other words, an uneven playing field. Um, that's a metaphor from sport. The playing field that you're playing sport on is uneven. One side is different from the other. It means that the game is easier for one team than the other team. And there is an uneven playing field in so many aspects of life, uh, depending on where you're from, who your parents are, and the color of your skin. That's just the reality of it. The playing field is uneven. Some things in life are easier for some people based on their background. Understanding racism helps us to understand the deficiencies in funding in black communities and minority communities in the UK and the USA. Why some areas receive more money than others and what that money gets spent on. Is it on having a stronger police force 
or having a new library or better schools. The differences between different areas in these countries has a lot to do with race. Racism is a word which has a concrete meaning today. It has a really significant meaning. In the UK, it's illegal to incite racial hatred. In other words, to say something which causes racial hatred, to use racist terminology, and to attack someone based on their race, religion, or ethnic background. But like many words ending in ism, racism is a system by which society was governed and still is governed in many parts of the world. Racism is not a natural, inherent characteristic of humanity that we are born with. Racism is something that we are taught. Racism is a system which was invented. It was constructed. Recently, over the last few years, there's been more of an understanding of this in both academic history, the study of history in universities and in books and articles, and also in science, particularly in genetic science, more of an understanding of where racism has come from as an ideology. Modern racism, the kind that we still recognize today, was constructed in the 18th century by scientists and philosophers. Scientists like Linnaeus um, and Blumenbach, both scientists who were interested in studying the differences between different groups of animals and also different groups of humans, and who pretty much used the same scientific models for studying humans as the scientific models that they used for animals. The word race um, was used in the sense that we understand it at the end of the 18th century. And before that, it was only really used for describing differences between animals. It was borrowed at the end of the 18th century and used to describe humans. Before that, there, there just wasn't uh, an effective word in English for describing this idea of genetic differences between different people, especially genetic differences which you can see on the colour of the skin and with facial features and so on. Race was used to differentiate between people, to say, this person is this race, this person is another, and as a shortcut for talking about biological differences. Now, we've said already that race is constructed. Okay, there are two things to say about that. One is that it basically is meaningless as a scientific concept. Scientists don't use the concept of race because it just doesn't help them at all. Genetically, we are far too interconnected with each other to be able to talk about race in any, any significant way, to say, this person has these genes, this person looks like that and has those genes. 
um, the racial constructs that we have today in Britain, we talk about people being black or, or Asian or, or white, those constructs have no scientific grounding pretty much. The second thing to say about this construction of race is that it is a valid thing to self-define as a particular race, to say, I am this race or that one. These are social concepts that are important. If someone wants to self-define as black or white or Asian, then that has a meaning that is important and that is significant. But that is different from a scientist coming along and saying, well, according to these facial features and this aspect of your skin colour, you are this race. That has no meaning. So let's be clear about that. It is a scientific concept that no longer explains anything, but it is a social concept that is still very important in lots of ways. As a political idea, racism had its high point in the middle of the 20th century, in Europe at least. A number of European countries had explicitly racist governments, governments which wanted to eliminate certain races, destroy them, and promote different races. There were governments who were influenced by eugenics, the supposed science of selectively breeding humans to concentrate certain genetic characteristics. These ideas still exist today. There are still people who believe in this kind of thing. But the 20th century and the middle of the 20th century, before the Second World War, that was the high point in Europe of racism as an ideology. Some would argue that it is really having a resurgence in Europe now. And that's something that we're not really going to look at in this episode, at least, but is a really important thing to bear in mind. This concept of race was invented by scientists, but like a lot of scientific concepts, it had a lot of practical uses for governments at the time and for powerful individuals. The concept of race helped to justify the system of white supremacy, which was so important for the people building empires in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was essential for discriminating between people, for saying these people are like us, these people are not like us. This group can be treated in this way, and this group should be treated in this way. And the primary function of race, or at least the primary function which we're going to look at today, was the role which it played in the Atlantic world, particularly in the transatlantic slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade, the trade in slaves across the Atlantic Ocean between Africa, Europe, and America. It began seriously in the 1600s, and the most significant empires were the British Empire and the Portuguese Empire. The Spanish, the Dutch, a few others also took part in the slave trade. It's also called the triangular trade, which means a 
triangle between Europe, America, and Africa. The way it functioned was that European traders would trade goods for slaves in Africa. In other words, they would trade objects. Very often these were things like alcohol and weapons. They would trade these goods in return for captured slaves. Other Africans who had been captured in the course of wars or battles. European slave dealers would then transport these slaves um, in a journey that would last months across the Atlantic to the Americas where they were then sold in return for products that were produced in America. Things like cotton, tobacco, sugar. Those products then went to Europe and were traded in return for the, say, weapons and alcohol, which could then be traded in Africa. So that's where the triangle comes from, and that's why it's often called the triangular trade. This was a really significant part of the functioning of the European empires that were becoming powerful at the time. As you can tell in this triangular trade, the slaves were commodities, just like the other commodities that were traded. They were a product to be bought and sold. And that's how they were treated in the journey from Africa to America, also known as the Middle Passage. Slaves were chained to each other and kept in awful conditions, often not allowed out onto the deck of the boat, onto the, the top part of the boat. They were kept like cargo. Of course, a very large number of them died during the passage. And since they were all chained together, you can imagine the horror of being stuck down in the bottom of one of those slave ships. Once they were in America, they were a source of labor. In other words, their primary function was to work. They would be sold to a plantation owner, like the Whitney Plantation, which we're going to talk about later. These were places where the main crop would be perhaps cotton or tobacco, sugarcane. Uh, if they were working with sugarcane, they would often be using machetes, basically one long blade. And on these plantations, their life expectancy was very low. In other words, they were likely to die very young. The risk of injury was very high working with these kinds of tools, especially after industrialization and the introduction of machinery. Deaths were very, very common. So that gives you some idea, very brief idea, of what life was like on a plantation. When slavery was finally abolished, ended in America in the 1860s, that didn't mean that it was the end of racism. Ex-slaves and other African-Americans continued to face extreme levels of discrimination. They tended to get work in servitude roles, in other words, as servants, or in very poorly paid positions, their life expectancy remained very low, and the investment into the areas where they lived remained low and often non-existent. Throughout 
most of the 20th century, Americans were segregated, in other words, separated because of the color of their skin. African Americans were not given access to so many aspects of American society, and racism continued to be a defining feature of American society. By the way, much of this applies to the UK also, which has had a black population for longer than the United States. And immigrants to the UK, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1950s and 1960s, faced very high levels of racism, and many continue to face that racism today. This is all by way of introduction to our interview with Dr. Joy Banner from the Whitney Plantation Museum in Louisiana. Just to let you know, there are some potentially distressing details about the lives of slaves on plantations. During this period of the transatlantic slave trade, the 330 or so years, um, is it fair to say that Africans were treated basically as a commodity, as a product to be bought and sold? So, yes. So they were being treated as commodities to be sold. Um, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a strange psychology that's happening, right? Because they are commodified. But I'm really careful in making sure to understood to, that people understand that their humanity was always an essence of who they were right but their humanity was ignored and yeah so i say that because the value of enslaved people is that they are human that they are thinking that they you know have incredible um extensive skill sets agricultural building um you know they you know surgical medical and in the north american continent in the 1600s we have to understand that was nothing there i mean and there is a huge population of indigenous people. So, but as far as their concern in terms of development, um, they see this, they perceive that there is nothing there. This is terrain that they have to come in and control and build, right? And start their domination and start their economic base and start their foundations. So there's a massive need on their part for labor. Um, and at that same time, you have the Portuguese um, and the Spanish that have set up these trade routes throughout um, Africa. So they have um, access to labor, but by the mid 1600s, I believe, it all becomes an African or African descendant based form of labor. Okay, so in fact, slavery becomes the sort of economic system which wins in America. It becomes, to use the word you use, the most successful system for the people in power effectively. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and like I said before, and then I really want to make a point to say this because um, in the current climate, there is more emphasis on the need for us to understand where our construct of race came from. And people erroneously believe that Africans were captured and enslaved because there was something about their Africanness and their, or their Blackness that was 
not at, that was you know subpar that was not as equal um however in the beginning of the american the colonies in the north american continent you know there is indentured servitude that's being used as a as a form of labor and you have enslaved Africans. And actually the first Africans that were brought in were considered, there was no slavery at that point. They were considered servants as well. Um, but what you have is these different nationalities of what we now call white and black, they're the same socioeconomic class. And what we have is them coming together as a unit and being able to push back on the powers that be. And when that was happening, then it was the, um, the current power that said we have to find a way to break up people so that we can control this labor. And then that's mm -hmm. when they categorize people with a certain you know, color of skin or white, and then people are black. And blacks are going to be you know, the enslaved labor, and we're going to use the whites to control that labor. Um, so that's when we have this construction of race. Um, it was used to create and protect an economic system. So effectively racism is the system which is used to keep this um, economic system working. Racism is the state of affairs that allows white people in America to feel comfortable about what they're doing. Right, and, and we have you look at the and of course the the um the gap between wealth of black of black americans and white americans is large right and it's it's just it's disproportionate everything you know it's disproportionate um the mass incarceration of blacks and and the impact on african descended people and black americans is you know truly something that is systematic mm -hmm. racism but i also want to point out too that the economics of everyone, especially middle-class whites and poor whites, are being impacted by racism as well. Because we're, we are the minority in this country, right? And so if you're trying to keep this economic system alive, yes, it's important that you control the source of labor, but it's also important that you control the majority of opinion. The majority of opinion are fellow white people. So they are, in a sense, feeding into a system that's keeping them you know, economically, you know, disadvantaged as well. You know, like we, our, our wages would be higher if we all fought together for, you know, equal wages and equal opportunities. Um, but this concept of race, this construct of race is so strong and so embedded that most white people are not going to view themselves in terms of economics and their economic well-being um, over their race. Before we get more into the relationship between this story and where we are today. Can I just ask you to tell us a little bit about the conditions on somewhere like the Whitney Plantation and what life was like for slaves who were working there? So uh, a sugar plantation is considered one of the most brutal places to work. Um, the average lifespan of someone that's in sugar work in particular is seven to 10 years. Um, it is a workload and work day that is from can't see to can't see is the popular term or a common um, phrase. So before the sun comes up and after the sun goes down, 
They are constantly, consistently working. Um, they are expending, their bodies are being consumed by the system. They are not being well-fed because feeding them more means that it's going to cost more. So the focus on, on cost, you know, that, that it's, it's value. I mean, it's, it's the way that you stay profitable. So they are very often not fed enough. And if they want to eat, you know, in order to sustain, um, sustain, sustain their life, then they have to spend whatever extra time that they have hunting their own food. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's brutal. It is backbreaking work. Um, and a, on a sugarcane plantation, even, you know, the sugarcane, the leaves on a sugarcane is very sharp. So they receive cuts, you know, from the sugarcane itself. Um, there's rough fibers in the sugarcane material as well that gets embedded and cuts in their fingers. Um, they're working with very sharp machete knives and are required to work at a very quick pace. So we see machete injuries when we have steam powered machinery in order to grind the sugarcane. Um, they run the risk of a, an article of their clothing, you know, their sleeve getting caught and their arm being brought in through the machine and, and being amputated. Um, or someone has to cut off their arm unless their whole body will be, you know, drawn, will be ground up in the machine. Um, there's burns. The, the sugarcane has to be processed over very high boiling temperatures. So it's hot sugar and, and hot sugar sticks. So there's burns that turn into infections. Infections lead to amputations um, or infections lead to death. So it's a, a very brutal life for the enslaved people. Um, and again, they're not getting their freedom and they're not getting any real economic advantage or any type of economic um, compensation for the fact that their bodies, again, are being consumed by a system. Do their, how do their lives change after, after emancipation? The treatment of formerly enslaved people, although they are free, they're still not given equal rights. Um, and in many cases, they're fighting, you know, with the union, you know, they're fighting for their freedom. Um, and in many cases, they're being relegated, you know, to roles that are considered, you know, servitude roles. And that's being quickly, I mean, that's being tightly suppressed by, you know, the, the belief that whites, you know, up to, uh, occupy a certain space and blacks occupy a, a lower space. Um, so there are, while they are free, they still face many instances of racism. Um, you also have, if you are, you know, potentially, you know, or now that you want to be on the, on the job market, um, from the other side of it, if you're a white person, that's now there's more skilled labor, you know, that's out there that's going to compete with your jobs. So we see a lot of like pushback, you know, uh, at least from racist um, abolitionists, you know, that you know, still do not want black people to be in community with them or have the same opportunities as them. So you've sort of answered this question in a few different ways already, but if you had to explain to someone how slavery has shaped America since then, what would be the most important point, do you think? Um, I would say that it's created a level of fear um, 
So if you look at one of the reasons why, you know, England decided to, to switch, switch away from slavery and to a slavery system is because at that time there were more and more revolutions and rebellions that were happening, right? So they understood that it's just not going to be advantageous for us. And there's other reasons, there's abolitionists, there's a change in the economics um, or the way that, uh, the way that labor, um, on the economic system and on labor, but it, slavery is always maintained, even though there is quite extensive fear that there's going to be a rebellion. And because we never shift away, because we, we compromise safety and security um, for money and for the slavery system, we still continue to have these fears of each other, right? And in particularly whites and blacks. Like if the fear is that if I do not control blacks, they're, they're going to turn around and murder me. You know, they're going to make me pay for it. And I, I think that white Americans in 2020 are still holding on to that fear of like, if I don't, yeah, maybe I want equal rights or maybe I believe in, in, in fairness, but um, they're out of control or, or, you know, they are going to inflict some harm and some danger upon me. Um, and so it's like an attitude of, I got to get them before they get me. I mean, in some way, shape or form, I think that um, white Americans still hold that fear about black Americans, particularly black men. Mm -hmm. And what about the long-term economic impacts? Do we still see the traces of that today? Well, and so we do the, the the fact that I can work at a plantation that was built in the 1790s, and I know that might not be old for, um, you know, in terms of, of England and how old your buildings and, and structures are, um, but the fact that that is 2020 and this house was built in 1790 and that is still a viable business, right? And the people that built the same structure, that maintained these same sugarcane farms, have never gotten paid a penny for any of the work that they've done. Um, well, I shouldn't say a penny. They have not gotten paid anything substantial to change the conditions, you know, in their, in their living situations. So there is massive, massive, massive amounts of money that was generated. It is the basis of the United States foundation of our economic system, of banking, of credit practices, um, of financial instruments that are being used but yet now the um the generational wealth that's been that's been um passed along through white generations black americans had no access to that right and so that's been harmful that we did not have the capital um but it's this system of racism that was extended you know throughout reconstruction throughout um when there were opportunities that were specifically given to white Americans in order to advance their position in society and create a middle class and create wealth, blacks were left out of that equation. Um, so we did not have access to the same types of mortgages, um, capital loans. Um, we had separate but segregation. And so resources for blacks were deliberately diverted away from you know, uh, diverted away from black communities. And so now we have like this situation where the playing field is so unequal that there's extensive, again, gaps in wealth, gaps in education, 
um, to where there is going to be, you know, the, the talk about reparations is a real discussion. So just to clarify, reparations is the payment that would be made uh, in in some way to account for the debt of slavery that is owed. Right, right. The debt of slavery that is owed and then also the debt from the impact of the legacies of a racist and, and slavery system as well. But but yes, but um, yes, so debt and however, whatever that debt would look like, I think that's the big conversation. Um, so yeah, but in order, if we really are looking at creating equality and if there is real acceptance of the fact that um, the system is wrong and there's a debt owed, then there needs to be some form of, of reparations that's examined. I think you 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 gave you gave an answer to this earlier to an extent. Um, I was just wondering how far you think Americans have a sufficient understanding of the nature of slavery and the role that it's played in your history. Well, I if you would have asked me this, I guess maybe two two weeks ago now or two and a half weeks ago. I would have said that our understanding of slavery and understanding of that role, I, I did not see, I, would not, I could not predict a time in the near future where I would see people really letting go of their defensiveness and being humble um, in the fact that we are very ignorant of American history in general and the way that American history has been so framed and, and um, constructed there's just a certain narrative that is core to our identity, right? Especially the identity of white Americans. Um, but with the death of George, George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd in that very horrific and graphic video, it was enough to wake everyone up and understand that the systemic racism is linked to discrimination in the workplace, is linked to um, deficiencies in healthcare and wealth gaps, that those are all acts of violence, not to diminish what happened to George Floyd, um, but they're acts of violence that really cause people to step back and question their character and where exactly did they stand morally on a lot of things. Um, so that's a long way of saying that um, people are requesting resources and the understanding what the term anti-racist means and, and understanding their history. So I see that people are going to do a lot of the work, at least start initially, have good intentions about doing the work. Now the, the question is, how long are they, how hard are they going to work to understand this? Um, but I definitely think that the, the power has shifted in a bit of, not like black people can't do this alone. Like we have to have the support. We have to have the numbers of a, of a large enough group of white people pushing alongside with us saying that, yes, we understand that this, that this perspective is one that needs to be examined. And so from a justice side, we have more people that are willing to examine areas of justice and are open to looking at race um, as a key problem in America. Do you think that this is a turning point? I, I think that it is definitely, a, it's, a, it's a turning point because I've never, in, a, in America, people were not even willing to say the word black. 
you know, if you said black, we can't, you know, black lives matter, then we would get the retort of, well, all lives matter. You know, that's the, that's the common, that's the controversy now. Um, so it was wrong for us to even acknowledge that race existed, right? It's like, you're supposed to be colorblind. We're not supposed to talk about issues of race um, because that's just like, we just don't do it. And so now the fact that I hear people actually saying black people, you know, like, I'm, I notice that you're black, I understand that you're black and your, your experience as a black American is different as my experience as a white American. We have not had that kind of dialogue um, about this. Maybe we were talking about it during the civil rights, but we are at that level of open, of open communication and honest communication um, as we were what I would think during the civil rights movement. I want to ask you a couple of questions about events in Britain as well, because I think Britain is a country which has had uh, has a very um, has a lot of things to to work out right now in terms of its own history, and uh, we're witnessing a lot of protests at the moment in in Britain, uh, just as you are in in the United States. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, there was a statue of a state slave dealer which was pulled down in Bristol. Um, and then a couple of days later, another statue of another slave dealer was pulled down in the Docklands in East London. And I was wondering, you know, what your perspective is on um, pulling down monuments from the past and whether you think this is the right thing to be doing today. You know, um, I think that when we, we have to be very careful about who we memorialize, right? And why were these monuments erected in the first place? And so if it is in, you know, in the case of New Orleans has had quite recently, um, I think is probably the, the poster child for removal of Confederate statues. In our case, these statues were placed up um, after the, the Civil War, and it was in obstinance, in opposition to um, the idea of equality, and it was it was erected by you know white supremacists, and also it wasn't about memorializing you know people that were considered to be heroes and all. Um, but I think more complicated and probably more in line of, of what you're talking about. Um, for instance, in New Orleans, we have a statue of Andrew Jackson. Um, president, one of the first presidents of the United States. And he has a very, very violent, controversial history. You know, his removal of the, of the Native Americans and his massacre of Native Americans is very problematic. Um, so he, he, but he's also, a, a, you know, one of the presidents of the, one of the, considered one of the great presidents of the United States. And like New Orleans, Jackson Square is a well-loved tourism spot. Um, but I think that we do need to start, in, you know, and I have an affinity for Jackson Square, and I have an affinity for that, that um, Andrew Jackson statue, you know, because of, of it represents it's, it's part of a tourism attraction. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to put our concern and our love for each other's humanity and our respect for each other's history needs to be forefront. And I do believe that 
we should examine um, removing these statues because at, at the end of the day, it's, it's just a statue, you know, and we got to think about what we want to represent and what kind of um, world we want to live in, what kind of society we want to build. And we have to acknowledge that these people were participants in things that we would not necessarily um, want honored in a way. So, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm on the side of taking problematic statues, taking them down and, and, and reframing history, having a more honest, well-balanced interpretation of history. Over the past couple of decades, there have been some historians who have made arguments that the British Empire was on the whole a beneficial institution and that it did more good than bad. Um, what would be your response to that kind of argument? Because I think outside of academic history, I think it's a point of view that you can come across quite frequently in Britain. So what would be your response to that? Um, I think that we should be more focused on the way that we have all evolved, right? And so the, the need to look at our history and, and frame it as this was good, this was bad, it happened. Right, and so I, I, what, I, in that, what I hear in that statement is um, defensiveness, you know, and we, and we get the same thing when we're talking about the institution of slavery. There are people that honestly believe that slavery was better for, you know, African-Americans than being in Africa, right? And so um, I think that that is, why is our identity tied to being perfect? Right. And like we're going to make mistakes and then we're going to run into issues and and be participants of problematic history. Um, and so there is there is nothing we've inherited this history. It is what it is. And so um, being able to go back and frame and, and defend Britain, you know, a defense is not necessary. You know, it's history. It is what it is. But to me, what is problematic about that statement is it seems that if you're not um, really open to the extent to the damage that was done, then you're not going to be really open to the solutions. Um, so it's like, let that, whether it was good, whether it was better, whether, whether it was worse, um, it doesn't matter. We're here where we are now. Um, so now how do we make it better? Let's acknowledge what happened without judging it per se. Um, and let's move on with improving what we need to improve. If anyone wants to find out more about African-American history generally, or about the institution of slavery and the effect that that had on the Americas, apart from obviously going to Louisiana and visiting the Whitney Plantation Museum, do you have any recommendations for what they could do? Um, so as far as African-American history, we are hosting a second of our uh, virtual book clubs, book club um, at Whitney. Um, it is on July 8th. It's a free book club. Anybody can um, become a part of it. And it's an option whether you want to be part of the virtual discussion or not, um, want to say anything. But we're reading a book called Stamped. Um, and it is an, an abbreviated 
it's, it, it's actually written for young adults because I wanted to make it accessible to um, a, a, a wide audience. But Stamped is an abbreviated edition of the book called Stamped from the Beginning. Stamped from the Beginning is 500 pages and it takes you through the history of race, um, traces it back to the 15th century and some constructs of race, um, how, what it means for America and how it evolved through slavery and into civil rights and all. That's an excellent resource. Um, it's written by Ibram X. Kendi. And so that's a great resource. As far as Louisiana slavery, um, we read incidents in a life of a slave girl. We use that as training for our staff here. That's the excellent resource that's available free online. Just Google it, Google it. In 12 Years a Slave is another great resource that walks, um, walks you through Louisiana um, and slavery in general. And yeah, there, there are tons of, of great resources, but I would start with those. Um, another important resource is the Library of Congress um, here in the United States has narratives of people that were formerly enslaved. So in the 1930s, um, narratives of enslaved people were collected um, as part of a, a federal project, and those are available online and for free and gives you firsthand accounts of what happened during slavery. Is there anything that you'd like to say that we haven't talked about or any subject that you'd like to discuss? Um, just that if whenever um, if we are opening on June 19th, so we're reopening. Um, so if, if I don't know like how everyone feels about traveling, I know that I'm still uh, kind of on the, on the hesitant side myself, but I certainly extend an invitation um, to all of your audience to come and visit us here in Louisiana, you know, and this is, a very important part of not only American history, but you know, America, we don't understand that now as Americans that we really were so many different countries, you know, and, and it's really very much so much in so much English um, that we, we see a lot of connection and a, and a lot of parallel to what is, um, is happening in Britain as well. Look, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been really fascinating to hear about the Whitney Plantation Museum, about slavery and the impact of slavery on America and the world today. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. I think we could probably have talked a lot more and there are so many things that we could have talked about, but um, we've, uh, we've, we've gone into it a little bit and uh, it's been really fascinating. So thank you. And again, thank you for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. And if there's anything that I can do, um, please feel free to reach out. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you enjoyed it, you can tell your friends about it and you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to hear what you think about it. We love getting your emails and reading your comments. So if you have any further thoughts about this episode or about future episodes, then you can send us an email at intermediatepods at gmail.com. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next week.